Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news, along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back again to Police Pod Talk. On the phone, I just happen to have from Indianapolis, Indiana, Chelsea Easter, a high school principal who wanted to share some of her thoughts. You can probably hear the birds in the background, so she's sitting outside enjoying the day. Chelsea, you can say hello to our listeners. Hey, everybody. <laughs> okay, and we hear the birds chirping in the background, which is a good thing. Uh, Chelsea's going to share with us today, and Chelsea, we're really happy that uh, you agreed to do this. Uh, we'd like to hear just a little bit about you. Tell our listeners who you are, where you come from, and then we'll get into the meat of everything. Go right ahead. It's all yours. All right. Well, thanks for introducing me. Um, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and I am biracial. I have a white mom and a black dad, and my mom was a social worker when I was growing up. This is the late 80s, early 90s, before people could be quote-unquote woke. And we talked about race at my house every single day. Mm-hmm. We talked about what it meant to be biracial, and even though that I, I had a white mom, the world didn't care about that. I was going to be seen as a black person, as a person of color, and because of that, there were things in my life I wasn't going to immediately have access to, like safety or like peace of mind all the time. And we talked about what it meant to go out into the world and interact with people, and that people are going to make assumptions or treat you differently, or... If you interact with the police, your number one goal is to come home safe. Hmm. You might have to sacrifice your pride. You might have to sacrifice your humanity in some ways. And that was terrible. And that was heartbreaking. But none of that mattered if you couldn't come home safe. So a big part of what this is for me, based off what I grew up, is trying to figure out how white people start to understand that being black in America isn't about... Jim Crow era as much anymore as waking up every single day and realizing that just because how you were born and how you look, you're not always going to be safe in the way that that weighs on your mind every single day and impacts every single decision that you make. I've been thinking about that since I was six years old. That takes a huge toll on your mind and how you see yourself in the world. When you were sitting around talking every day about safety and uh, things like that you had to be worried about nothing actually happened to you but you were being told this right yes yeah so i grew up um in an all-black community i went to a a high school that was predominantly black we talked about it in our schools we talked about what this would look like and then once i got up into high school i started to see these things happening more systemically i'm sure at the time i didn't realize it was systemic but the fact that our school didn't have the books that everybody had or the fact that our school when we would drive our bus to basketball games they would throw stuff at us or the fact that when we drove our bus to basketball games we wouldn't be allowed to use the locker rooms because they would be worried that things were going to get stolen things like that that maybe at the time felt subtle i'm not sure i remember thinking like this doesn't make any sense we're great kids we didn't do anything yet it was right. just always the assumption right. that something would happen. Um, and because I kind of grew up in that insulated community, I didn't really experience white people who were educated and wealthy um, until I started playing AAU basketball. 
and through those type of programs, you get to meet people from all over the city. And from there, you know, that's where things kind of take a turn, where I meet people who are asking if there's drive-bys by my house, or is that my is that actually my dad, or do I know anybody in a gang, or just stereotypical questions that nobody had ever asked me before because I had grown up in a community of people who were all very similar to me and had the same experiences growing up. So once you meet people from like an outside space, you get an idea of how the outside world sees you and your community. Now, did you ever answer any of those questions to the kids who were asking you? <laughs> uh, I, eventually, I'm sure, but in a really joking and perplexed way, you know, as a teenager who has a lot of sarcasm, just like, uh, no, of course, what are you talking about? I'm so confused. I didn't think at the time to like turn this into a teaching moment, <laughs> which right. of course, as an educator now, I would look back like, Let's talk about why you're asking those questions. <laughs> right. But when you're 17 and you just want more playing time, you're not worried about that. You're not <laughs> thinking about that. You're trying to get in the game. Right, right. So, How long did this continue? I mean, you're 17. Oh, I would say, I mean, yeah. Uh, I was 17. I played ball for AAU. With, you know, you kind of play with the same group of girls, but you get new t- new girls on the team throughout each year. Right. So every year there was always somebody from, you know, one of the nicer communities that sometimes we would go visit who would have a lot of questions. And, you know, knowing the high school that I went to, that we have a reputation that we're, you know, a rough school or we were like actually the sixth worst school in the state of Ohio at the time. So (laughs) there was a lot of ideas about how smart you were if you came from my school or if you could read or if you could do anything. So just a lot of questions about that. And I would say it continued on well into college. I went to a predominantly white institution in Michigan. And uh, that really changed the game because now it's getting to the point where people are thinking, I've never met a black person like you. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Well, you seem so smart or you talk different than everybody else. I didn't know what that had to do with blackness. But at the time, because I was in university, um, I started researching. I started, you know, I got my degree in English. I focused on African-American literature. So at that point, I really got deep into what it meant to be black and what it meant to speak up. And that's where I say I found my voice. With saying that, give me an example. What happened? (laughs) Um, When I was moving into my dorm, my dad was carrying in a bunch of stuff, and I was the only black person on the floor. And people kept looking at him like he was like they were like kind of hesitant when they would step out the doorway. Like, is he taking stuff or is he bringing stuff in? (laughs) What's what's going on? So somebody was like, "Excuse me, sir, what are you doing?" It might have been the RA or like somebody, an upperclassman on the floor. And I was like, no, he's with me. It's fine. And I had my, you know, college shirt. I um, was playing for the soccer team. I was so excited to be there. And um, they were like, what are you doing, sir? Like, he's with me. We're moving in. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's all right. <laughs> and that was the first day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome to college. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. an old move-in welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yep, there it is. <laughs> so... You got that from people who maybe didn't see too many black people and weren't sure what he was doing there. Do you believe that they were racist or do you just believe they were curious? I would say I would have described them as ignorant more than anything else because they had a vision in their mind of what black people do and what black people are. And I would have wanted to now push them to see if they could get themselves towards realizing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I worry in calling someone racist, even when they are, that in some ways that closes the door to being able to have a conversation with them. Because as soon as you say, oh, that's, you're racist, you are racist, nobody wants to hear a conversation about how they can get better. Mm. But if I would have said that was a racist thing that you did and kind of separate them from that just for that minute, I think that provides an educational moment that I wouldn't have otherwise. 
I don't know if that hurts the situation or if that hurts the conversation because now people are like, well, I'm not racist, but well, you do some racist stuff. So that's something we should examine. Uh, with the team, you finally had to get with your team and teammates. How did that go? Um, I would say similarly to AAU, just questions, especially because I got recruited to play basketball and this is a division three school, but I started out playing soccer because I'd played all through high school and it's a great way to kind of stay in shape before your season starts. Mm-hmm. I was the only black person on the team. Most people had questions like, I didn't even know black people played soccer. Or I didn't even know that you guys would have had this at your high school or whatever. Right. Um, so mostly just like questions that revealed ignorance. Never anything. I'm sure because I have light skin privilege because I'm biracial. I was, there was a lot of never like blatant attacks, but always just a pervasive feeling of having to prove that I belong somewhere. Tell me about the coach. Do you remember anything you may have felt from the coach or coaching staff? <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> um, just a few, like just to say a similar type of vein. Like the first day, you go out and you do your um, skills test to assess, you know, how fast you're running. Did you do your summer conditioning? And my mile time, everybody's mile time's coming in seven minutes, six thirty, and mine came in about like ten. I had to meet with the coach. <laughs> she was like, "I assume that." You, you know, yeah. I assumed you would be faster than that or that you would be able to. I was like, I, I don't know what you mean. Well, you know, because you're, um, <laughs> oh, because I saw, I saw you played basketball. So I just assumed you were going to kind of come in at a different fitness level. I was uh, like, oh, is that, oh, okay. Well, yeah. coach, if you need me to run again tomorrow, I guess that's what I'll do. Yeah. But I just, <laughs> I could, we could see what was happening in that moment, but I don't think I was prepared with the tools yet to just say, sounds like what you're saying is biased it's racially informed when you know i was 18 (laughs) (laughs) right i got you did you ever have any interaction with police officers that may have been positive or negative during that time yeah we had um a resource officer at our school and um he was a great guy he's a black officer and he was he got to know all the kids names he was at all the basketball games he checked in on kids when we would have people from our school get into legal issues outside of the school he would make sure that he was present and kind of represented and made sure that he could like you know be that person for that kid which was really great but i would say otherwise just always being anxious when i was driving when i would get pulled over for speeding or something like that just the the fact that i would never know for sure how it was going to go Mm -hmm. Um, especially if I had any of my friends from high school in the car that were black, especially if they were black males, I already knew like this could go bad. So here's what we're going to do. You know, go through the steps my mom taught me about where you put your hands, what you reach for, what you don't reach for. Just that kind of anxiety that was always present Mm -hmm. when you drive past the cop, when they pull you over. So I never had a defining moment with a police officer being pulled over. It was just always that moment in the back of my head that I was always scared of not being sure what was going to happen next and do you believe that all started when you were young six seven years old that was told to you yeah and seeing how the world treated my dad differently like when we were with my dad versus when we were with my mom my dad's six two 250 pound black men and <laughs> we would go out to lunch at subway that's the place he would like to take us and he'd walk up to a table of white people and he'd be like hey excuse me and they would all jump and he's like, oh, I just wanted to give you a coupon. I was like, oh, like my dad's the nicest human being I've ever met. And just because of how he exists in the world, people are very scared of him. So just like knowing that because of fear, people make bad choices, that I was always nervous if I was in the car, 
by myself, but especially more so if I was in the car with one of my black male friends. And you never experienced the police do anything to your black male friends? Uh, just, just to target them instead of me as the driver. Like, excuse me, sir, I need your license. I was like, well, I'm, sir, I'm, I was driving. Here's my license. No, you. Even if they were in the back seat, you, I need your license. Hmm. So that was always interesting that they would always get chosen first to provide an identification and then, of course, an explanation on why you're in this area of town. But never, never asked to like get out of the car or step out or anything like that. You're you're in college. Okay. You're in sports. Uh, you know these things are going on. Did you finish your college years in sports and play basketball? I ended up just playing soccer, and I, then I graduated in three years. So just played soccer through those two two of the three years. Okay, and can you kind of let our listeners know what did you graduate with? What did, what was your plan on going to school? Not just for sports. I know you're there for something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I graduated with a degree in English. And then I went on to grad school in Chicago, where I got my master's in African-American literature. So, yeah, I was three years in Michigan and then went off to Chicago. Kind of fill us in on what was your opinion, what was your take on this entire thing when you saw George uh, Floyd and this whole Minneapolis thing and then all of a sudden the protesters. Give, give us, paint a picture for us what you were thinking and feeling. So, I think the saddest part for me was when I saw about George Floyd I thought, here we go again. The immediate feeling was apathy because this has become a little bit of a norm. This is happening so frequently that I worry that if I were to have a breakdown every single time, I wouldn't be able to function day to day. Mm -hmm. So I know, I remember reading about it, watching clips and just being like, oh, this is another day in America. And then eventually that feeling changes over to sadness and rage and frustration and then trying to figure out what to do and how to fix it and you know what can I actually do besides sit here and be sad and then I see the protest some of which turns into what some people are calling riots we tried we have tried for decades to peacefully protest to kneel to be silent to speak up to march and nothing has changed no one cares that nobody should be shocked that this is happening. Nobody should be shocked that a Starbucks or a Target got set on fire. Nobody was listening when everyone was quiet, so we had to do something. So do I wish there was a world where we didn't have to resort to violence to do this? Of course. But if we lived in that world, we wouldn't be in that first in the first place. I felt supportive. I felt like this is what needs to be done for people to listen. And then that was reinforced when the officers were actually arrested you know, after three days of protests and riots. So do you believe that the protest, the violent protest, the destructive protest led to the other three officers being arrested? Yes, I do. I think that had things remained quiet and part just peaceful marching. I mean, there's hundreds of examples of people who have been killed by the police and we change our Facebook pictures and we post on social media And we march and we hold up signs and nobody gets arrested. This seems to be the the catalyst that made a change. Okay, I I just want to make sure because I know there's some listeners out there thinking right now, you mean they're saying, wait, you agreed with the destruction. You agreed with the uh, mistreatment of the officers, the throwing things and uh, that kind of stuff. You agreed with that? I would say I agree with destruction of property much more than I do harming other people physically. But I do agree that this is part of the conversation that needed to happen. I'm in support of people who were protesting, for sure, and supported people who took it to the next step. 
And now that these three gentlemen, or check that, all four of them have been charged. Oh, yes. Okay, now that that has happened, what should the protesters be doing? I think that protesters should continue to protest, and now we change the name. Who was on the list right before George? Who was on the list right before Brenda? Who was, you know, the list is long. I'm glad that we feel like we found justice for George Floyd, or that we're getting towards that. And I worry that if, if now we say an arrest was all we were looking for, we're actually looking for a conviction. So I would say the point, a point has been made that this is where the community has been pushed to and arrest was made. I would say I would advocate for continued march, marching and protests throughout major cities across the country. There's more people who need justice. I get that. And the listeners are saying, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and I've talked to a lot of police officers who have yet to want to be on the show. Um, <laughs> they're saying, when do you end marching? We get it. We understand that some changes need to be made in our system. We understand that maybe training needs to be changed. We understand all of that. But when do you stop the marching? I mean, give us something in writing that you want. What would you tell them? What would you tell the officers? What would you tell chiefs of police and mayors? What would you tell them? I would tell them, as we look at the list of all the victims of police misjudgment, police brutality, where are the names of the officers who have been arrested? And once we go through that list, then we can stop marching. I mean, George is one person on a long list. So I would say until murder, murdering black people becomes an actual crime that is consistently led to arrests and convictions, I don't think we can. I don't think we can stop marching. You made a comment a while back that uh, your dad's 6'2", 250 pounds, he's in Subway, he goes to hand someone a coupon and they jump out, yes. of, out of fear. Yeah. Do you believe that that same feeling is inside of police officers if they pull over a car or they go to a house and he answers the door? Do you think they have that same fear? Yes, I do. Of him. Do you think yeah. that fear of him or the fear of someone like him, uh, a person of color, can change their judgment and thinking? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm very confident of that. Do you believe that if a police officer expresses that fear to a person of color, would that conversation go well? I don't know. I don't know if I can say, gen, like, in a generalization, that a person, any person of color. I think that's an amazing start. I think you can't change your fear until you acknowledge that you have it. <laughs> you believe that there are more people of color being killed by police officers than there are white people being killed by police officers over a year's time. I would say that I think that the situations where it appears that the person is surrendering. And it appears that the person is not actually posturing in a way that's aggressive and unsafe. Definitely. Okay, you're saying that when those situations, you believe a person of color is killed more often. Yeah, like in the percentages of people who are interacting with the police, I think that if you are black, you are much more likely to be killed by the police in a situation that they feel is high stakes and they're feeling really anxious. Yes, for okay. sure. An officer wanted to make sure, like I said, I've talked to a lot of them. They said... Do you believe that there are more people of color attacking police officers than white people? You you ask them, or they want to know. What they want to know think. what you think. Yeah, sorry about that. I guess I didn't word it. Oh no, I got it. <laughs> I don't know. Do I think that that people of color are attacking police officers more than white people? Right. I would say no. I would if they were. <laughs> I understand why they're upset, but. No, I don't think so. Okay, give me that. You said if they were, you understand why. What, what would that why be? 
I think just in the same way that police officers are responding because they're scared, I wonder if people of color are responding the same way because they're scared. Okay, so it doesn't make it, you know, it doesn't make it the thing, the right thing to do, but they're terrified for their life. And you admitted something at the beginning that you were always taught um, that you want to come home safe. Uh, mm-hmm. that that's the most important thing, and that there was this built-in fear of police when you were growing up, right? So that yeah, that, just, that, maybe yeah, an awareness. I okay. I would say I probably turned it into a fear as a kid, but just an yeah. awareness on how to be safe. Yeah. Okay, so both sides have a little bit of fear, don't they? Mm-hmm. Okay, I just want to make sure we agreed on that part because that's yeah. that's always coming up. Uh, like I said, officers do talk to me, and they just kind of give me a few questions that I can ask along the way. Now, you said yeah. that you, what was your major? You you were you had a uh, what was your? Uh, I studied I studied um, English. Okay, and then there was something else you studied too, or you you have a? Oh, I got my uh, master's. master's in African American literature. Okay, with that in the back of your mind and you're seeing all these events unfold what what are we seeing is this something back in history give it give me a history lesson we <laughs> you got the mic we we want to learn something so i think what's interesting so i'm a big malcolm x fan and people talk a lot about how malcolm x was this extremist and he was terrible for the the movement because he was kind of on the edge of this extreme of like calling for violence and what's interesting and then martin luther king is is portrayed as this polar opposite. What's interesting is, I believe from what I know and what I've researched is that Malcolm knew that he had to call for the extreme to even get people to step towards it because he didn't see the movement happening quickly enough. In due time was a really common phrase coming from the legislatures at the time. In due time, we'll get these schools integrated. In due time, we'll make sure you can vote. And it was going so slow. So part of Malcolm's motivation was, if I start talking to get people to a 10, at least I can get them to a 7. And at least at a 7, we can start making moves. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of his life and Dr. King's life, Dr. King started to move a lot more towards Malcolm's point of view. And Malcolm, once he went on the Hajj and came back because he met so many different people of different races during his religious experience, he started to move a little bit more towards the center. And I feel so sure that had these two men be, been given five more years to live together and work together, that we would have made so much more progress because both of them got to a point where we can't just march, we can't just sit in, but we can't burn it all down because of what's going to be left. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we've been doing this now for 50, 60, 70 years. Malcolm X has a whole speech on police brutality. And from like 1963. <laughs> so none of it's new, mm-hmm. but something has to change. And I think a big part of that is white voices have to speak up because I put stuff on my social media. I reach out to my circle. I can only reach so many white people. And the white people I reach because of how I live my life aren't in disagreement with me. What, but what? I need to get the people who are surrounded by other white people who disagree to start to speak up and reach out. And get those people to understand about what's going on. I want to go back. You said the white people are in disagreement with you. What is, What do you mean? Are not that? are not in in disagreement with me. Like the people who I keep in my social circles, I'm like preaching to the choir when I okay. talk about white privilege or when I talk about why Black Lives Matter and why 
being around police is scary for a black person, even if you as a white person have never experienced that. But my, you know, I, I can preach to the choir all day. I need them to turn around and preach to their choir because that's a different audience than what I have. Have you mentioned that to them or do they not even know that about you? That you oh. need that? <laughs> oh, no, I mention, I mention it every single chance I get. Okay, and do have your white friends who you are in your circle, have they reached out or are they not doing that yet? Oh, I would say recently, because things have gotten so quote unquote, you know, the violence and the riots because things have gotten so extreme. I've had more people reach out to me directly and ask what they need to do and ask how they can help and just check on my mental health than ever before. Okay, so that is a good change, a good thing that's happening, right? Yes. And does that do you think that will continue to happen or do we need to continually protest, march and do things like that? I think that if the marches die down, then the outreach dies down. Do you have a problem with the way the police have handled the protesters or the marchers? In some cities, for sure, with the tear gassing of people who are peacefully protesting, or we've seen videos from different marches of people just getting beat by batons or held down when they don't have a weapon and it appears to be a moderately safe situation where a police officer could take control in a less violent way. That's really frustrating. But I've also seen recently at the Carmel mayor's house, Carmel, Indiana, um, there was a line of protesters who were just ready to probably burn that thing down. I don't know. But the police were kind of guarding the, the house. And then they put down their batons. They put down their shields. And they crossed the line and joined the protesters and all took a knee. And I think that was a beautiful moment for us to say, let's talk about this more instead of jumping right to you know, something a little more extreme. And the police, because they made a choice, helped turn that into a safe situation. That was a great moment. You're not sure what the protesters were there to do? No, I'm okay. not sure. But because of police action, nothing bad did happen. Nothing violent did happen. And that, that, was, that was an example of how the police are still very much in control of the space, and they turned something that could have turned unsafe into a great moment where people felt in solidarity with the police. So here in the last couple of days, we have seen a lot of change with that. We've seen the police marching. We've seen state troopers marching in, in small towns. We've seen a lot of that going on on the positive side. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that in your eyes is a good thing, right? Yes. Okay, and that, that needs to continue, but uh, do you really believe they're going to continually just march nonstop until every person on that list is you know, their case is taken care of. No, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. These movements ebb and flow with just the energy of the people participating, of the media, of the anger. Anger fuels action. Right. So I think that if people feel less angry, they're still going to want a change, but there might not be as much visceral motivation. Now give me, and I I ask everyone this, you tell me what what is the best thing that needs to happen as a protester what is the best way to do it and then give me what do you think is the best thing that police departments need to do in situations like this how do we fix it is really what i'm asking you on Mm -hmm. both sides give it to me i would say i look at this as i look at everything uh, from the lens of an educator so the protesters continue to protest continue to be informed continue to speak out so that people see how heartbreaking it is when a police officer kills a black person and it doesn't feel like it's a crime. For the police community, 
I think that there needs to be a shift in how we train police officers and in their mind, what does a criminal look like? What does a criminal do? How does a criminal behave? Because I think that while probably not directly taught to them, I didn't, I've never taken police training. I'm sure no one said black people are criminals, but either because of things that are discussed, things in the media, it's like you have to train your brain differently so that when you see a black person, you don't have that terrified feeling. You don't have that urge to reach for a weapon or to use more force than necessary. But that's just a, that's a training situation, I think, and that needs to be systemically adjusted. Mm-hmm. But also, there needs to be more open space for conversations between both groups. In some ways, you get so locked into being defensive as a natural human reaction. When you're defensive, it's really hard for your brain to listen. So I would love to see cities now take this next step into an open town hall where people can speak and share their thoughts and feelings in a place that's safe and making sure that people leave much more educated than they arrive. All right. I'm going to kind of go back and I'm going to hit you with what I'm sure someone's thinking. At the beginning, you agreed with the way the protesters broke things, burned things, made a scene, and because you wanted them to get their point across. You said that that's the way, only way to wake people up. You agreed with mm-hmm. that. Yes. But now that that has done, been done, four people, four officers are in jail, you believe that a peaceful protest is the better way to go? Yes, I do. Okay, you don't think I think that, that now. Okay, and you don't think that there's any need for any of the behavior you saw or that you agreed <laughs> with, right? I understand why people would do it. <laughs> I I understand you've got decades long of being upset and heartbroken and, and distraught, right. um, and maybe you're scared that nothing's going to change, but I would say, from my perspective, especially someone who works with young black men every single day, mm-hmm. I would want to gather them together and educate and protest peacefully now. Okay, now, now, now mm-hmm. you see, okay, because there is something yeah. happening. You, you do see something positive happening, right? Yes. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure we got that out there because yeah, I know, I yeah, know, I mean, I know I'm going to get that question. They're going to say, well, wait a minute. Why on one <laughs> hand did she say this, but then turn around on it? At least we answered that. So yeah. It'll save me answering another email. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, we hear the birds in the background. Do you see better days coming? Oh, yeah, I have to. I have to know and hope and wish for better days coming because I work with teenage boys every single day in order for me to feel motivated to wake up and go to work and continue to change kids' lives. I got to hope that I'm changing their lives for a world that's different than the one we have lived in. Uh, I'm going to throw this one more question in there. You've said twice that you work with a lot of young black men. Is mm-hmm. there someone in your school, is there someone on your staff that spends some time talking to them, educating them about their role in society and, and uh, their interaction maybe one day with a police officer. Does that ever come up or do you don't feel that's your responsibility? Oh, it's everyone's responsibility at our school. People have to be equipped on how to have the, have, how to have the conversations. We have a resource officer at our school mm-hmm. who is white. He has conversations with kids all the time. When I see two kids in the hallway horse playing and I ask them to stop and they don't, and I ask them a second time to stop and they don't, that conversation is no longer about the horseplay. It's about the fact that somebody gave you a command or a request and you didn't follow it. And if you were out here on these streets, you could have got killed. 
And that's extreme, and that's heartbreaking to have to say that to kids. But unfortunately, it's incredibly realistic. So we try to have these conversations with our kids in a safe way where we can talk about it and they can ask questions. But we also want to prepare them for what's possible for them out in the real world. I got another listener in my ear saying, wait a minute, she just said it's if they've been asked to stop and they don't stop, they could end up getting hurt. Do you think the officers maybe asked some of these protesters to clear the street, move along, and they didn't stop and they didn't listen? Were they doing the exact same thing that your two kids were doing in the hallway? Yeah, but that doesn't mean they deserve to get hurt. It just means that somebody didn't have enough patience or didn't have the training to de-escalate the situation in another way. All right. I'm but just... yeah, I mean, you're not, you're, not, you're not wrong, right? People didn't listen. Mm-hmm. But I also feel confidently that someone not listening doesn't mean they get killed. Okay. I, okay. That part I agree with. There's no no, <laughs> no problem with that. Right. Okay. And I'm just going to let you, I'm going to throw my little two cents in. I, I don't yeah. believe every protester down there was down there to get mad and break things and burn mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Okay. You agree with me on that? I, yeah, I agree. Okay. Cause I, I, there, I don't believe there's anything wrong with protesting. I think if, if you feel you want to protest, protest. But I, I, my opinion is, and, and uh, a lot of police officers say, they just don't agree with the breaking and destruction of property. Yeah, I understand that perspective completely. Okay, and then as a police officer, you say, no, wait a minute, when I show up, there got to be some uh, abiding by the law going on here when you're asked by a, a, a law enforcement officer. And I, I get what you're saying, that you're upset. You're angry. This has been going on. But where do all of a sudden those two things come together and say, okay, we either need to back down or stop doing what it is we're doing? Yeah, I think it's hard to say what what that exact point or moment is. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was 30 years ago. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when if there was a moment that has passed, that has come and passed. Right. Um, but I think that we need to take this moment of progress mm-hmm. and turn that into a bigger platform of, we had to go to this extreme to get something done. We don't ever want to have to do that again. So right. here's the changes that would have to be made. And I liked when you said the progress. I believe there's been a lot of progress here in the last week that I've never seen. Yeah. A lot of conversations here in the last week that I've never seen. And that that's a good thing. So I got yeah. one final question for you. Because it sounds to me okay. like you went inside. The birds went away. But I did, yeah. <laughs> okay. One final question. Give me what it is you really want your white friends to hear from you. The ones who are on your side, give me one more time what you want to hear for them to hear. I want them to hear that this is where they show up. This is the moment there's this message on social media. If you were a white person invited to the cookout, this is the cookout. This is your moment <laughs> to let your actions support the things you have said to me as an ally in private or when you reached out to me in a message and said hey i'm just checking in on you i know these are some really devastating times i want you to know that i'm on your side and i have your back now it's your time to prove it by reaching out to your white community to calling out someone when they say all lives matter who i don't understand this black lives matter thing to reaching out to someone and, and using the tools that you have because you're educated or because we've had these conversations about race and not let people kind of, it's a privilege to have somebody say something crazy to you that you disagree with and let it go. I can't let that stuff go. I can't emotionally, I can't let that pass. So use that privilege to make a difference and to educate other people or to call them out and say, what you're saying is really 
poorly informed. It's incorrect. It's you're not really understanding how this works. Uh, and when I've seen people do that, that's been the most moving thing because they're making a difference that I never could, no matter how hard I try. I know I said that was my last question, but but I got I got <laughs> to pick your brain on one more thing because this is going too good. Give me your take, and it just came up in the news the other day. Uh, Drew Brees made a comment about the kneeling. <laughs> yeah, he did. Kind of explain to the listeners, and this is the one point that a lot of people just don't seem to understand. You tell me your take on this whole kneeling thing. Yeah. So the kneeling, Colin Kaepernick, the, mm-hmm. he's an amazing man. He he was never against America or against the flag or against the military. He was against police brutality, and he said that many times. And if you equate America and military and patriotism with police brutality, then that's another part of that's another like layer of the issue. If you're saying when he was kneeling, it was against the flag, no. It was against police brutality. So I think when Drew Brees came out and said that he disagreed with the kneeling, he's not under, he's either not understanding or not in agreement with the fact that police brutality is a pervading issue in our country, and it specifically targets a group of people that he doesn't belong to that group. So if he were to come out and say, I've never had a bad experience with the police, well, that's privilege talking. That's that that might be very that might very well be true, but that doesn't mean just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not happening. I never got the coronavirus. Does that mean the coronavirus doesn't exist? Absolutely not. So he has to understand that when he said that, especially in the city of New Orleans, who has had so many racially charged issues, especially playing in the NFL, where the majority of athletes are African American, people who he's throwing the ball to every day are African American. He made a stance, whether he knew it or not, that was saying and taking away from the pain of, I don't really think this issue is that important. I don't really see the big deal when there are black men who are dying, and that should be a big deal. I I knew you'd have an opinion on it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge football fan, and I I stood, I mean, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan for life, and I went out and got that Colin, Colin Kaepernick shirt this day of. So, I mean, it's huge. It's a huge deal. But I think that people were trying to separate the discomfort of this being a race issue by calling it a patriotism issue. And if you think that in America, patriotism and racism are things that that go together, that's the problem. I think that Drew Brees needs a lot more education about how his words impacted the people in his direct community and people that he works with and sees every single day. And I think that just him apologizing with his stock photo of a black and white handshaking is not going to cut it. Okay, like I said, I knew you had an opinion. I just had to pull it out of you. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, that was, that was good. That was good. <laughs> well, Chelsea, I, I tell you what, I'm so glad that uh, you reached out to me and uh, we made this happen and you got a chance to yeah. talk. And it, it, to me, I think we could have actually another whole podcast on uh, what you what your, <laughs> your master's is or whatever your, your degree is in. But, uh, oh, my goodness, you've got a lot of knowledge there. And uh, we appreciate what you do as a a high school principal. I mean, that in itself is tough enough. And then uh, <laughs> that you keep reaching out to young men and young women and, and trying to better their lives. We really do appreciate that. And we know, we all know you guys do not get paid enough, okay? <laughs> and we all got a taste well, of that, but this corona thing, having to stay home and having to help our kids with homework. The e-learning, yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. So we, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the platform. I appreciate just having the space to talk because the constant and consistent communication has to happen there you go there you go and that's the bottom line that right there is the bottom line 
Chelsea, out of Indianapolis, as a high school principal, thank you very much for being with us here on Police Pod Talk. And I'm sure the emails will come in. And I tried to beat some of them down with some questions before they get here. But, hey, they're going to show up anyway. And, again, that's what we want. That's really what we yeah, want. Yeah, it's more space to talk and, right. and to communicate and, and have some outreach. So Excellent. I appreciate it a lot. Excellent. Okay, Chelsea, thank you for being on Police Pod Talk today. And, folks, we will catch you again next week. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always go to policepodtalk at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook at Cleveland Junior or Police Pod Talk. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. <laughs>